As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, then please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. But now for today's show. I am so excited today to be joined by the wonderful Dr. Amy Orr-Ewing, an international author and speaker and theologian. And Amy has written numerous books, including Where is God in All the Suffering? Why Trust the Bible? And most recently, this wonderful, wonderful Advent book, Mary's Voice. Would you paint for us a picture of first century Palestine? I mean, what would Mary's context have been? Yeah. So um, when we talk about Mary, we often think woman in blue robe, you know, I think they would maybe have a Renaissance art kind of view and quite a nostalgic view of the baby and the animals at the nativity scene. But actually for a Jewish woman living in Judea, Palestine in the first century, you're talking about somebody living under occupation. Um, My husband and I recent, well, not so recently now, but we know when the war with Ukraine broke out, we had two women, a grandmother and mother um, came and, and stayed at our farm and it just moved me so much to to listen to those women. What does it mean to be a woman living under occupation? There's the threat of sexual violence. There's, you know, all sorts of rights that are taken away. Just that feeling of oppression. If you have a sense of national identity, that is kind of crushed. So that's the situation for Mary. But then lay on for Mary specifically as well, an overwhelmingly patriarchal society, both the Greco-Roman occupiers who, you know, viewed women as, as objects and a woman's testimony had less value in a court of law. So it's interesting what Mary plays this role of witness. But even in the Jewish context, you know, the rabbinic um sort of writings of the time give us an insight to the sort of level of sexism in the culture, in the Jewish culture, where, you know, women weren't taught in the same way as men. Um, it was seen as shameful if a if a woman provided financially for her family or husband. So you're sort of stuck in 
I guess, geopolitical occupation. And that entails a level of poverty because your assets are, you know, you're massively overtaxed and all of that. You're living in a situation where you've probably got a fear for your men folk, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to be abused in some way? You're in a patriarchal situation. And then another layer for Mary, an angel appears to her. She's a teenager, a young teenager probably. An angel appears to her and says, Mary, you're going to give birth to a child. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. And she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. In other words, Mary understood biology. She knew how babies were made. And she is now being invited. She's given a choice to which she says yes. And she knows the cost. We perhaps don't know the cost to say yes to becoming pregnant outside of marriage with all of those other layers of, of oppression you're living under. And so in that context, this woman is even more extraordinary. And then for the final layer of how amazing it is that, that we know about Mary is that in no other ancient literature equivalent of the time is the voice of a woman and the perspective of a woman recorded as we have it in this way. So at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we have this detailed account, the conversation between Mary and Gabriel, her interaction with Elizabeth, and then of course the Magnificat, this incredible hymn of praise, but also ethical teaching and defiant prophecy in the face of all these levels of injustice. So even just in literary terms, this is fascinating. Even if you have no religious background whatsoever, to have a woman-centered in a historic narrative in this way is absolutely extraordinary. And how has the character of Mary traditionally been perceived? You sort of touched on it in a previous episode where you said that when you played the character of Mary as a child, you were completely mute. I mean, is that how she's been perceived, this very quiet, demure? I think so. I mean, I think um, if you look at the sort of tradition of Christian art and visual images just have such power, don't they, to, to shape our subconscious of, of how we view things. But the vast majority of depictions of Mary through history capture her with a sort of cherubic baby either on the hip or sort of, you know, looking into her face. And so, I mean, I know, you know, I've got, I've got three children, but the few weeks when, or the few months when my children were that age are just a tiny snapshot of my life and the person that I am. But within the church, we've kind of distilled who Mary is basically into just that one very static image, often the eyes down, you know, after after the Renaissance period. Before that, before the Renaissance, her eyes were often up in, in, in art. And that's significant in terms of her engagement with the world, but eyes down, demure, sort of pure, you know, holding holding this baby. Um, and I think what that has meant is that we've perhaps overlooked how both in Luke and John's gospel, we have this clear depiction of Mary as a disciple of Jesus. So as an older woman traveling, engaging with the teaching of Jesus, 
um, and then bearing witness to the details of the cross. And then much later, after the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, spending time with Luke, rigorous researcher, um, who carefully investigated all the sources, spending time recounting or recalling, having memorized all sorts of things. You know, that key phrase, Mary treasured these things in her heart. In other words, she memorized them in an oral culture. So I feel like we've had this very reduced um, perspective on her and it's actually way more expansive. And then when you look at the traditions of the early church, you see Mary as an evangelist, Mary involved in leadership in the early church, Mary traveling, having a traveling itinerant ministry. And even um, there's a depiction of her in the cathedral, one of the cathedrals in Sicily, hands raised in blessing, you know, in a posture of of what the leader of a church would be would be doing. So it 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 um it's just sort of opened my eyes to many, many more dimensions to to this amazing woman. Well, I love you've got a great line in the book where you say the demure the demure Mary of Renaissance painting does not cohere with the woman who defiantly proclaimed in her Magnificat, he will bring down the rulers from their wow. thrones. But somehow Mary is a silent mother figure became a feminine cultural ideal for women and Mary's own voice says something different. Yes. And I think that's what I was yeah. really opened up to through yeah. your book, this idea of actually she's got so much more to say to us, hasn't yeah. she? And isn't her what happened to her the experience of so many women in different walks of life that you're sort of in a box, you've got to make yourself smaller. You know, not that she did that, we, that you know, in a way the church has done that to her and we're so much poorer for it. Um, for, for, for not knowing. And then I sort of discovered all kinds of really delightful theological details because, you know, I hadn't really, I don't think I've heard, I'm not sure if I've ever heard a sermon in a church on, on Mary's role or her words. I'm not sure if I ever have, maybe one, but you know, um, and then realizing there's an intentionality in the gospels, a sort of parallelism between Mary and Abraham. You know, Abraham, the father of faith, Mary, this kind of mother figure of faith, and Abraham's son, Isaac, carries the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain. Thousands of years later, Jesus, Mary's son, carries the wood for his sacrifice up the exact same mountain. Um, as the lamb that God would provide that Abraham prophesied. So amazing kind of um, theological resonance as well with her. Well, and as you say, you sort of looked into lots of different traditions of, of what people said about Mary. I mean, what do you think is particularly noteworthy about the title given to Mary by the Eastern Church, Theotokos? Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting. That was one of the, the debates within the church, um, in the early centuries of the church. What, what would Mary be called? But as you say, Ruth, that the Eastern churches called Mary Theotokos, the mother of God. And they felt in that word, you are, um, summing up the truth of the incarnation that Jesus is actually God born for us through a woman. Um, and that was not to worship Mary. The Eastern, Eastern tradition, you know, obviously there's a great respect for Mary, but this isn't, this isn't about worshiping Mary as a God. 
but it's about exploring the the kind of mind-bending possibility that God became a person in his own image. You know, we're human beings made in the image of God. Jesus is born as Emmanuel, God with us, but through this woman. So an extraordinary title of, of um I guess authority as well. And and I think pointing out her obedience and humility and the massive cost to her to play that to play that role that you know that that that, that, that would have entailed. You mentioned the impact of the Magnificat when you heard it in a previous yeah. episode, when you heard it in an even song setting. But if if people don't know what the Magnificat is, what is it and, and why is it so significant, do you think? So um, the word Magnificat is again Latin word and it comes from just magnify. And so the Magnificat is um, from, and it's recorded for us in Luke's gospel. And it's the song Mary sings after Gabriel has told her she's going to be the mother of God with us, Emmanuel. And she begins, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. So the Magnificat is often sung by choirs. Um, and it has a sort of cult, I guess then a cultural reference if you if you're ever in in those sorts of musical circles. But when you begin to really dig into what it says, it's an extraordinary um declaration of what she believes Jesus has come to do so it's a kind of prophecy of the kingdom you know he lifts up the humble and brings down the mighty from their thrones he provides for the poor it's this it's it's often taken as a kind of source of Christian ethical teaching about what it would look like to really honor the image of God in, in all human beings I think in our cultural moment with all the power discourses that are happening, you know, all the this sense of who's got the power dynamic here and how do we really examine power and our use of power, Magnificat is basically doing that and it's saying Jesus is the key to that. Jesus is the key to justice in this world. Jesus will ultimately be the source of judgment, of injustice in this world. And she draws on all kinds of other Old Testament imagery and references as well, which is interesting because it says although she wouldn't have had a formal education, she definitely knew the Old Testament. She knew the scriptures. It's very rich. Um and so in the book, there's a particular week where we kind of break it down and look at each of the phrases and really dig into what is Mary seeing and saying about Jesus. And um, by listening to her voice, I guess, recapturing a vision of um, the goodness of the incarnation. I and mean, that's one of the things that struck me most in all the crisis in the church that we're in at the moment, all the abuse, all the, you know, rubbish that is happening. And then in the sort of catastrophic injustice around us in our Western cultures and then global poverty and all the challenges of this world, here is this song of hope that still centers a possibility of goodness and justice and um humility and it's through the voice of this of this woman and it feels like 
the kind of prophetic call, it is time to listen to her. And I, I in my own life, you know, the, the time that I was in, I just really needed that hope again. So I pray that this book will be a source of hope and it's kind of realistic hope because it's not denying the oppression of misuses of power that Mary knew only too well personally, but it's like eyes up and on to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Um, I just think we desperately need that right now. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Amy, there's a beautiful moment in the book where you talk about your grandfather attending meetings led by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. (laughs) Would you share just a little bit about that and also what Bonhoeffer thought of the Magnificat? Because he spoke about it as well, didn't he? I mean, so um, for those who don't know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor um, and in the sort of 1920s and 1930s as as a young pastor, he was gathering university students for table talk and trying to engage you know young people caught up in the enlightenment and that would have been my grandfather he he once went to one of those so it sort of has a particular resonance for me um and then as the nazis sort of gained power in germany he realized um the church has to resist and he was part of the confessing church and he ended up being part of a plot on Hitler's life and he was actually captured and was hung in prison actually for weeks before the liberation of the camp where he was. It was very tragic. He wrote amazing books like um, Life Together and books on discipleship, Cost of Discipleship. But he thought the Magnificat was the most glorious articulation of justice and goodness in in this world and for him as someone again living with that unbelievable kind of political oppression and all the power misuse of the nazis he's all centered centered the magnificat when i when i discovered that i just felt oh my goodness why didn't i know this before um well, but, yeah. yeah didn't he call it the most revolutionary yes, hymn ever sung exactly. I mean, yeah, is, like well, now we know why people amazing. aren't listening to this because it's the most revolutionary song ever written words ever written and that's quite a statement isn't it say in the 20th century so again i sort of feel like for those of us who've got friends who are on that edge of like can't stand the institutional church and all the sort of obsequiousness to power and you know bowing and scraping you know this song upends the world upends reality if we actually listen to it and mary the theotokos the mother of god the one who god chose to be the primary witness to the incarnation she thought that was what jesus had come to do amy you've definitely already touched on this but why do you think that women played such a key role in the life of jesus so um i think there are a number of reasons like I think one of the reasons is profoundly theological and like what you might even call ontological, like what what being even means. Um, What I mean by that is I I was asked a question by a teenager about five years ago um, in a sort of Q&A session saying, you know, if 
men and women are made equally in the image of God. Why did God come as a man? And um, it's a massive question, isn't it? Is is the Christian faith really sort of centering men, not women? And I was able to say to that young person in that moment, you know, in the Bible, it does say men and women are made in the image of God, Genesis one twenty seven, And then, you know, we go through Genesis 3 and you have the fall of humanity. And in um, God's interaction with the man and the woman after sin has entered the world, the first messianic promise of the Bible is given to the woman, not the man. And God says to Eve, your seed will crush the serpent's head. Now, usually, even in our world, but certainly in the ancient world, people thought of children as progeny, the seed of the man, you know, the man's line, as it were. So God is saying a woman's seed is going to crush the serpent's head. So then when Mary, the teenager, hears from Gabriel, you are going to have a child by the Holy Spirit, that's a direct fulfillment of the promise to Mary's foremother, Eve. So yes, Jesus is God incarnate and he comes into this world as a man, but he comes through a woman and not through a man. So it's not a natural conception. A woman is uniquely involved in the incarnation and a man is uniquely involved in the incarnation because Jesus comes as a man. So I think we see this really beautiful picture of um, what it means to be human and the image of God. So I think there are theological reasons. Then I think there are evidential reasons. Jesus centered women as the key witnesses to the incarnation, Mary, the crucifixion, the male disciples deserted Jesus. Awful gospel accounts tell us that apart from John. So you've got one man there standing far off, though, according to one of the accounts. So the details of the crucifixion of Jesus are witnessed by women. We only know them because of the testimony of women. So if we're not prepared to be taught by women, we've got a bit of a problem with, with the cross. <laughs> That's another story. Same with the resurrection. The first people at the empty tomb are, are the women. Now, in that cultural context, if you were to position women in that way as witnesses, you'd be mad, you know, because their their testimony was not seen, seen as having equal value in a court or in any literature. So by doing this, it actually becomes a form of evidence that the accounts are true because no sane person would position women in this way in the narratives. There's kind of evidential reason. And then I think it is also kind of a fulfillment of Mary's proclamation about what Jesus has come to do. He's come to lift the humble and bring down the mighty. So he is upending the power structures of his age. And one of those power structures was patriarchy and sexism. So Jesus, by having female disciples, not just having female disciples, having female disciples pay for everything. You know, Luke's Gospel chapter 8 tells us that. By doing that, Jesus is is showing us the kind of revolutionary nature of, of what he's come to do. So there's a sort of justice element, an evidential element, and a theological element. Um, and I, for one, just feel so encouraged when 
you know, I was talking uh, in our first episode, Ruth, about when when you were asking me about, you know, preaching and how I'd never seen it. I've never seen a woman do it and how um, seeing something as possible just makes such a massive difference. So I think Jesus does this and centers women in the way that he does for all the reasons I've given, you know, whatever, evidential, historical, theological, but also because he loves women and he wants us to be able to read ourselves into the narrative of scripture as well as men. We're not excluded, we're included. We're not just included, we're centered. And that is amazing for women. And it's also amazing for men who love women. Any man who's got a mother, that's every man. Any man who's got a sister or a daughter or, you know, a wife or a girlfriend or a friend who, who needs to know that justice matters and women matter. This, this is, this is what we see. Amy, just as we come to the end of this episode, this was like a massive question to end the episode on. Why did God pick Mary? Yeah, that is such a hard question, Ruth, because on one level, of course, we don't know. But I think the implication um, of her statement, God has been mindful of the humble state of your servant. Her statement, I think, speaks to it. God chose someone who was the most insignificant in the eyes of the world. So obviously a woman, and that fulfills the prophecy to Eve. A woman living under occupation, an unmarried teenager, um, the relative poverty of, of the age, and her willingness, her obedience, you know, the Bible talks about how God knows the heart and the eyes of the Lord rove the earth looking for, for anyone who's righteous. So God, God sees someone not in the palace, not in the, the power structures of, you know, the wealthy classes, but he sees someone really ordinary living under all these layers of oppression and he chooses her. So I don't know why her specifically, because obviously there quite, would be quite a few people who who fit into that category, but I think all of those things about her are really significant. And that says something about us, about who can be included and what we don't have to be and what we don't have to do to receive the love and mercy of God. Um, it says something about who's included and excluded. No one is excluded. Um and I, I think Mary's voice just really, you know, focuses on that truth. And that's really beautiful. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And as always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Do drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.